we should probably welcome back Bo from Bolivia. Uh, yes, we haven't seen him for a while. Uh, we'll catch up with you after the worship today, see what's all happened. Well, we are ending up with Habakkuk today, and as you see, the title is uh, When You Feel Like Quitting. And I think all of us have reached that point at one time or another in our life. But as we come to the end of Habakkuk chapter 3 today, we're kind of turning a corner, if you will, um, in our study. The, the whole tone of this book is going to suddenly change. Uh, we move from confusion, which is really the first two chapters, to a sense of clarity that we're going to move from fear to faith. Now I'm going to make a couple of general observations as we begin uh, on which this whole book turns. Uh, nothing has changed on the outside. When Habakkuk is writing this, remember, he's, uh, he knows that the Babylonians are coming. And he's praying to God that this won't happen, but things just haven't changed. Habakkuk, though, has changed. He's changed his attitude from chapters 1 and 2 to chapter 3. And we find a lot of bad news in those first two chapters. But in Habakkuk 3, you've got all this really good news. And the book ends on a wonderful note of hope and praise. Now, the question is, uh, how did the prophet, how did Habakkuk uh, move from this initial fear and worry that he had to a place of confidence and joy and praise? And how did he get from where, uh, when nothing around around him has changed? What happened to this guy? See, the people that he was living among are still mocking God. Uh, Violence is still on the streets and the Babylonians are sitting outside the gates uh, and they're going to come to Jerusalem outwardly. Everything is just as messed up as it was when he began this short little letter. And yet Habakkuk, the man, has changed totally on the inside. Now, how did that happen? Well, this chapter gives us the answer and the outline is really pretty simple. Uh, Habakkuk contains three things we're going to talk about today, and that is a prayer, a vision, and a testimony. So we're going to take them one at a time, see what we can learn uh, from the prophet's spiritual journey, and perhaps apply it to our own. So let's start with prayer. And you're going to see a Bible verse up here from, I think it's verse 1. Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, Lord. Repeat them in our day, in our time, make them known. In wrath, remember mercy. That's the opening prayer for chapter 3. So kind of in the space of this impending calamity, uh, the prophet prays for a a full manifestation of God's power and glory. Now we should probably add that in our prayers today. Lord, show us a full manifestation of your power and glory and your mercy in the midst of of what seems to be, as they say, going to hell in a handbasket. It's as if he's saying, Lord, I know the bad times are here. I know the even badder times, is there such a word? I guess badder times are coming. Is that not a good word? The worst. Okay, well, I like badder. It sounds better. Uh, And he says, I know bad times are coming, and I I can deal with that, he he is saying here. Uh, I'm not fighting against your plan, Lord, but Lord, if hard times need to come... Don't let the Babylonians wipe us out. Remember mercy or we're all going to die. Now, you think about it as a simple little prayer, but, you know, that's an extremely biblical prayer. It's an honest prayer. It's a desperate prayer. 
And it's the kind of prayer that I want to, I want to suggest to you that God will answer. I mean, this thing today, Lord, we here at Restore, we've heard about you. We've heard what you've done. We stand in awe of what you've done, Lord. And what you've done, we'd like to see it again, repeat it, so that we, we can make these things known. And so in the anger that you're about to spread out here against the Babylonians, show us some mercy. Now notice he asked God to do again in his day what he did in the past. Now twice he says it. He says, do it now, Lord, in our day, in our time. Now this ought to be a prayer, I think, of every thoughtful Christ follower in this critical moment in our history. Now, we, I have heard a number of people say that we're about ready for this big revival. Now, maybe, that, that's my response to when people say we're going to have a big, big revival. I say, well, maybe. But I'm not so sure yet about the timing. I'm not going to be one of these guys that says we're on the cusp of something that God's going to do. Well, God's always on the cusp of something. But when I read about all of those great revivals of the past, the Great Awakenings, the Second Great Awakening, all of those kinds of things, uh, they, they feel and sound like stories from another planet. It just doesn't seem like something that would happen again. Now, are such things possible in our day? Well, yeah, it's easy to give in uh, to the doubt when you consider the gravity of today's world. I mean, today's world's kind of in a mess. It's not just here in Branson Hollister. It spreads all the way around this world, whether you've got fighting in the Ukraine, whether you've got the persecution of the Uyghurs in, in China, or you name it, it's all out there. But that may actually be a good sign, all this nonsense that's going on. And I'm going to suggest that it may be a good sign because revival usually comes during desperate times. Maybe some of you experience that in your own life. You, you were down and out and in desperate times and God came and brought a revival. Brought something new in your life. Now, you don't generally receive a miracle unless you desperately need one. It seems that God is not going to move in power here until things have fallen into what I would call dire straits. He's going to let it get bad enough. Bad enough. If that's true, then I'd say we're probably today in 2022 in a pretty good place for something spectacular that God wants to do. Now, I don't know whether that means what he wants to do in your life or my life or what he wants to do in the life of Restore. I'm praying that he does it in the life of Restore or praise and worship or any other church in the Branson Hollister area or whether he's going to do it worldwide. doesn't make any difference to me how he does it. Was that passage say before? Well, we've seen you do in the past. It'd be okay if you did it again today. Now, I understand that revival is the sovereign work of God. It's nothing that we're going to be able to manipulate and conjure up. We can't sit down and make a plan for revival unless God gives us that plan. He, he can move from heaven anytime he wants to move. Now, that's frightening to some people. I mean, at the end of times when he comes back, people are not going to be, some people are not going to be particularly excited about that. See, fire comes down from above. It's not worked up from below. But revival, revival fire is going to come down from heaven. I want to suggest to you there's, there's no reason we can't lay out a little kindling. <laughs> we can at least be, we can be a little bit prepared for whatever God chooses to do. Now, at the, end of, at the end of all my thinking, as I was going through this message about revival, I came back to a, uh, 
I found something in my files. Uh, Nancy and I lived in Hong Kong for three years, and uh, we picked up a few Chinese proverbs along the way. Some are particularly funny, but I found one in some old notes. It said, O Lord, change the world. Begin, I pray thee, with me. You're going to bring about a change. Why not start with me? Why not start with you, Chess? Why not start with you, Lou? Be okay. Or in the words of that old spiritual, we could have sung this one today. It's a me, it's a me, it's a me, oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. Not my brother, not my sister. Uh, but it's me, oh Lord, standing in need of prayer. This is where it's going to start. Now, my greatest challenge is the guy I see in the mirror in the morning. And this is precisely where revival needs to begin. I mean, I'd suggest that the next time you see a mirror, walk in and say, Lord, if revival is to come, start with me. Revive me, O Lord. Well, let's move on to the vision, because this is kind of interesting. Uh, The vision, after he prays this little prayer, he has a vision of God. And uh, theologians call this a theophany. And theophany is just a, a seminary word that it's kind of a fancy word for an appearance of God on earth. So somehow after he prays this first prayer, he comes out and he prays this, this, this little prayer. And, and uh, God reveals himself to Habakkuk in something like a dream or something like a vision. And he records this in these verses, well, from verse 3 all the way through verse 15. Now, these verses are really very poetic, which is what you'd expect from a guy who has a vision from God. Uh, but the point is very clear. Knowing that his nation faces imminent judgment, Habakkuk says, Lord, do something. Do something. And the vision is God's answer. It's as if uh, God says, look, uh, Habakkuk, you've forgotten who I am. You've forgotten who I am. You're talking like I can't hear you. And if I don't, you talk like I don't have any power. Or let me show you who I am because if you understand who I am, then you'll sleep at night. I thought about that. You know, I've, I've had a couple of nights recently where I kind of woke up in the middle of the night and had a hard time going back to sleep again. And when I was looking at my notes again for this message, I, I feel like putting this on my side of the bed or on your side of the bed when you can't sleep at night. Just take it home and put it on your side of the bed when you can't sleep at night. And that is to remember uh, that if you understand who God is, why are you awake worrying? Why are you awake worrying? But see, the point is very clear. Knowing that the nation faces imminent judgment, Habakkuk says very simply, Lord, do something. Do something. It's as if he said, you know, in these verses, then Habakkuk is going to recount God's activity in the past. Now, he focuses. Let's look at this. He said, you came out to deliver your people, to save your anointed one. You crushed the leader of the land of wickedness. You stripped him from head to foot. With his own spear, you pierced his head. When his warriors stormed out to scatter us, gloating as though about to devour the wretched who were in hiding, you trampled the sea with your horses, turning the great waters. Now, does that raise any memory in Scripture? Do you have any idea what Habakkuk may be saying? Do you remember the time this happened? Yeah, how about Moses and Habakkuk? He he focuses here on the Exodus, uh, the time in the wilderness, the crossing into the Jordan. Uh, This is a period of time where God just worked continuous miracles. And by recounting all of this, God is saying... (laughs) 
hey, Habakkuk, have you forgotten what I did for you in the past? And if he did, he said, I'll do it again. Now, sometimes we read the Bible. If you're anything like me, you read the Bible and you wonder if God can do it again in the 21st century. Now, we know he did all this spectacular stuff 6,000 years ago. In the beginning, God created. Boom, there it was. Uh, we know he turned water to wine at the wedding at Cana. We, we know he came. But, you know, what's he done for us lately? <laughs> I mean, that's kind of our attitude. Well, he's done all kinds of great things for us lately. And, uh, but here's the answer to the question. If you're wondering uh, if God can do it again, I've only got uh, two words for you. He's God. That's actually, he is, that's a contraction. He's God. That's how I know he can do it again. He can intervene any way he wants to. He's not going to come to me in the middle of the night and say, Hey, I know you're the pastor of Restores. I need a little advice. <laughs> I don't think that's going to happen. He may be in the middle. I know you're the pastor of Restore, but i got something to tell you. And you better share it with Chaz right away or to Mike. Because these people need to know these things. Now, you get a kind of a flavor of this theophany which focuses on this defeat of Pharaoh. Now, I've already read it to you, but I want you to look at the verbs in this in that sent, in this sentence. He says, you came out. I mean, God showed up. Uh, you crushed. You stripped. You pierced. You trampled. That's what God did. And guess what? He then gets all the credit. You and I were not there when any of this stuff happened. And we can see two things very clearly, and that is the utter defeat of those people who oppress God. If you're worried about people today that are oppressing God, and there are all kinds of people with all kinds of nonsense, guess what? They're going to have to face God. What can we do? We can pray for these people. We can hope to show some light in their darkened lives. But we know ultimately God's got it. God will deal with people who do not believe in him. See, God always gets the credit. So we see two things very clearly. One is that God's going to deal with people who oppose God. And we're also going to see a divine intervention of God to do whatever it takes to deliver God's people. We ultimately get out of this alive. See, but a lot of people at the end aren't going to make it. Now, why is this here? Well, it's because many people have not found a God big enough for their problems. I don't know about you. You ever think you have problems and you just can't figure out how to solve them? Um, don't you have a God of problem solving? <laughs> I mean, that's a good reminder for all of us. I mean, if you had a bigger God, you wouldn't worry so much. I don't know who the worriers are here. I've often kidded that she worries that I don't worry enough. <laughs> but if you had a bigger God, you wouldn't worry so much. If you had a bigger God, you'd be stronger in moments of crisis. If you had a bigger God, you would be less tempted to compromise with this world. Let's move on to the third part. This is a testimony. Now we come to the very end of the book. The end of the book. First of all, there is acceptance. Acceptance. He says, I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us. This is Habakkuk kind of going, okay, Lord, I get it. The Babylonians are going to come. 
They're going to attack, and then you'll judge them. I guess I'll just wait for that day to come. Now, we don't know whether or not Habakkuk lived that long, because it still was about another 70 years. We don't know how old Habakkuk was when he wrote this. But he could have been a really old man and seen this, but probably didn't. It, but it doesn't really matter, because Habakkuk's words mean message received. <laughs> That's what he's saying to God. Okay, message received. Now, second of all, there is a commitment. And I love this Bible passage, verses 17 to 18. Though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vine, though the olive crop fails and the feeds, fields produce no food, Though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God, my Savior. There's two words that jump out in this. I didn't underline either one of them. One of them, obviously, is to rejoice. I mean, even though bad stuff happens, I'm still going to be, I'm going to rejoice. The other word I love is yet. I preached a sermon a couple of different times in my life where the title was, How's Your Yet? I mean, how is your yet? Look at this. Even if all of this stuff falls away, if the trees die, uh, the olive crop, you, you lose everything, how's your yet? How is your yet? Now, the re- let's go back to the other word, though, rejoice. The rejoice very literally means to jump for joy. Uh, we might even say it means to dance for joy. Now, how is that possible during bad times? How is it possible to dance for joy? Well, Habakkuk has described a total economic meltdown. Ancient Israel was an agricultural society. If you ran out of figs, if you ran out of olives, if you ran out of grapes, if you run out of grain, if you run out of sheep, you run out of cows, you're in deep weeds. Now, this isn't just a random list. This is a portfolio. This is where people made their money. What do you do when you're wiped out? What do you do if all of your investments suddenly disappear? Let me pose the question this way. Uh, What would you do if tomorrow the stock market imploded? What if it totally tanked, and I don't know what it's up to now, but whatever the number is, maybe Jeff back there knows, what, what is the number, you know, some big high number. What if it suddenly plummeted to zero? Yeah. What would you do then? All of your investments are gone. Uh, your pension has been destroyed. Uh, your 401k has been KO'd. <laughs> it's been wiped out. What then? How do you face that? Or maybe say, well, what if you uh, lose your job? Uh, what if your safety net that you've been kind of holding in place kind of springs a leak or fails? What if you run out of food? Now, we've had so many people in and out of our house lately. I mean, it's like wall-to-wall food. But what if you open up a refrigerator and there's nothing there? And there's no hope of getting any. Or what if you can't pay your bills? Or what do you do if your kids end up in jail? Or what if your loved ones you've been praying for forever to come to Christ never do? Or what if the doctor says it's terminal? Or what if your spouse dies and you're suddenly left alone? 
Or what if America actually falls to a foreign power? Or what if you lose your job because you're a Christian? Or what do you do if you actually end up in jail because of your faith? What then? Those are harsh questions. But I think a lot of people only have a God of the good times. We like it when we're happy and got money and we got food and everything like that. But they serve God and love him and praise him when all is well. And I hope that's none of you, that you only, you only praise him in the good times. But what will you do when hard times come? And some of you have lived through hard times already. And you'd be better able to stand up here and tell people how to handle this because you've been there. You've done that. You've moved through. See, if all you have is a God of the good times, you don't have the God of the Bible. See, sometimes the fig tree does not bud. Uh, Sometimes there are no grapes on the vine. Uh, Sometimes the olive crop fails or the wheat crop, or the corn crop, or the soybeans, or whatever. Uh, Sometimes the fields produce no food. Sometimes there are no sheep in the pen. Sometimes horses get sick and even pass. Sometimes there are no cattle in the stalls. What do you do then? Well, you can get angry with God, or you can give up on God altogether. Or... You can choose to believe in God anyway. See, often we mistake faith with feelings. And faith and feelings really shouldn't work together too much. I mean, faith is not about how I feel. I mean, I had somebody come up to me one time and said, Well, Pastor, how are you feeling? And then they, before I could answer, they said, Who cares what you feel? <laughs> I want to know, where are you with Jesus? I, I had that happen to me down in prison about 20 years ago. Hey, Doc, how you feel? Oh, who cares what you feel? Yeah, well, faith isn't about feelings, much less it's not about our circumstances. Uh, faith chooses to believe when it would be a whole lot easier to stop believing. This is why Habakkuk said, I will wait, what? Patiently, patiently. And I will rejoice. He found new strength in the midst of well, desolation in, in, in face of all kinds of nonsense. Now, here's the last verse in Habakkuk. It's often overlooked. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to tread on the heights. Interesting last verse of a book. Well, the phrase, my feet, uh, speaks of life's journey. Sovereign Lord of my strength, he makes my feet, my journey through life, if you will, like the feet of a deer. He'll give you the stability to get through the slippery slopes of the life that you and I lead. Now, it kind of reminds me, some of you uh, may already be thinking, if you go back to Ephesians chapter, uh, Ephesians chapter 6, the uh, whole armor of God, and uh, Paul says, when you put on all the armor of God and then having done all, what does he say? Stand. You got the whole armor of God. Stand safe and secure because you got everything you need for whatever battle you're going to face. Now, that's where Habakkuk ends. And that's where uh, our journey through this book ends. 
Uh, but let me repeat again. One single most observation that I can come up with Habakkuk is this. As the book ends, nothing has changed from the outside. Do you get that? Habakkuk ends, nothing has changed from the outside. The people of Judah have they still forgotten God. Uh, violence is still happening in Jerusalem. Uh, the wicked people are still oppressing righteous people. Uh, the Babylonians are still God's tool for judgment. Uh, hard times are coming, and there's nothing anybody can do about it. Nothing has changed except this. Habakkuk changed on the inside. There's the difference. See, we all come from different situations. Um, some of us are happy all the time. Some of us not so happy all the time. Some of us are sad. Uh, some are healthy. Uh, some not so healthy. Um, some are excited about the future. Can't wait. Uh, some got a few clouds of uncertainty out on the horizon. But if we know the Lord, if God is our Savior, then we can still have feet to tread on the heights. That's what he was talking about here. Even in the worst moments of life, we can stand while everyone else around us is falling. See, it's always too early to quit. I watched a little college football yesterday. I'm not going to reference my lousy Cornhuskers. But I watched enough football and I coached enough basketball in high school and even in college to know that there are certain times when people quit too soon. They give up too soon. Now, I think it would be good to just hang that motto on, write it down someplace, hang it in your house. It's always too soon to quit. <laughs> and remember that. Uh, I told you in the very first message that Habakkuk is strong faith for confusing Times. Now, everyone who is listening to me this morning, or everybody who's going to listen to me online later today, uh, is in, you're in one of three places today. You're either coming out of some confusing times, or you're in confusing times, or you're about to go into confusing times, but you don't know it yet. That's why I would say, take this little book of Habakkuk, tuck it in your back pocket, or tuck these messages, four or five of them, in your back pocket. And if you don't need this message today, um, you might need it tomorrow or maybe next week. Uh, so I'm going to just leave you with one final thought here. You'll never know that Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. And when Jesus is all you have, then you're going to discover that Jesus is all you need. That's really the message from the book of Habakkuk.